Welcome to Machine Learning. Well, it's been a long weekend. Uh, did a lot of exercise. And uh, it was looking at uh, quite a few videos on just uh, what kind of things that you could uh, buy with uh, AI. And uh, those are things like... Uh, uh, in China, they started the first uh, uh, AI-driven taxi. So, Auto X is what they're calling it. It's an interesting kind of uh, use the X term, uh, like uh, X robots, E robots, X twenty nine. That's what I called my uh, flying aircraft in. Uh, my books but uh yeah it's interesting tesla's introduced a new uh, electric uh prototype for an electric plane and uh you know what uh what level of power would you need to generate to create a uh, uh anti-gravity plane which is uh interesting you know i watched that godzilla movie and uh they were traveling to the hollow earth and the planes that they were using were anti-gravity planes. So does that mean that Hollywood uh, knows that there's at the anti-gravity exists? And, uh, you know, has that been around for quite some time? Or did they lose that technology, lose that knowledge and uh, understanding of how to create the anti-gravity? Also, you have Hollywood that's talking about time travel with the Philadelphia Project, which I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, the idea that uh, you could have uh, time travel through electromagnetic fields using Tesla coils. Well, Hollywood's got some imagination, but... Uh, one of the things that's interesting is sometimes imagination crosses over into real life. Uh, look at tricorders. Okay, tricorders were devices that uh, Star Trek personnel could use to analyze different phenomena around them. Uh, it could analyze uh, air content. Uh, it could analyze energy signatures. It could look for a biological form. Well, we've got e-watches. They can measure our heart. They can measure uh, uh, certain cardiac events, like defibrillation. But, uh, you know, we don't have a device that we wear that analyzes our DNA. But, um, you know, if that became a market where people wanted to know what their DNA was, you know, like if their di diabetes for example, was getting out of hand, that DNA sampling could tell them that they're having, you know, they're in a severe diabetic condition. Or if cancer is starting to grow in their body, why couldn't the device tell them that there's cancer signatures that it's finding in the DNA, uh, such as certain uh, enzymes? So when you have a heart attack, they measure, you know, enzyme levels in your heart to see uh, 
if you have a problem with your heart, if your heart muscles are dying. And so you could use the same type of thing with the device where it could detect whether or not you have uh, an issue with your heart. And, uh, you know, what uh, type of preventative analysis could occur with this smart watches? You know, and as the technology improves to do constant analysis of your health. Um, maybe you're dehydrated and your electric signals of your skin uh, are letting the device know that you're dehydrated and you should get some electrolytes. I, I find it interesting that uh, the, the move towards technology is for constant interaction with technology. It's not periodic technology interaction, but a constant interaction. And um, as a result, you know, this weekend I did a lot of sleeping. I was just exhausted. And uh, I haven't, my sleep, my sleep has been terrible. My daughter did a sleep analysis on me, which was a, and again, using an IOT device, and it analyzed my breathing patterns. And, you know, I, at one point, I, I went 90 seconds without breathing. Another one, I had an episode 111 seconds. And, uh, uh, you know, I was just, it's exhausting to not get good sleep. And so, you know, I've been doing these uh, techniques where I try to suction my tongue. Uh, up towards my mouth, roll my lips, uh, lip tape, put uh, nose mutes in, open, keep those uh, air passages open. And yet, you know, there's these where the brain tells, doesn't tell the body to breathe. And I don't know why my body does that, but it's a strange, uh, it's a strange rhythm. Um, if you have that, you know, the, the question is, is if you're connected to a, a, an AI device, will the AI device sound the alarm? If you're moving into these states that are where you're stopped breathing, will it sound the alarm to wake you up? So the trade-off could be, you know, getting woke up from your sleep versus, you know, just uh, powering through these episodes where you stop breathing. And... Uh, you know, maybe it's time to go see a specialist. I don't know. You know, I just... Uh, uh, but, you know, maybe you trust the AI better. You know, because we get to the point where, we're, you know, AI devices are constantly analyzing us and giving us recommendations. Maybe we start trusting them. And then the result of the trust increase, that increases... Uh, business for the medical industry so maybe the medical industry uh, promotes and and encourages the use of AI devices to help uh, detect health issues you know if you have an infection you have a bacterial infection that's going on a virus you know uh, a temperature a fever all these things that you know that we're scared of with COVID maybe it could be analyzing if you have uh, certain symptoms that might indicate you have the flu or a cold or an infection and it can detect the difference between the, the different signatures. 
the use of AI for health is going to be a huge industry. Uh, makes me almost wish in some ways to make my move back into Swift and, and uh, start uh, you know programming for health applications. Um, and there's still time to do that. I'm doing a lot right now with trying to understand AI and uh, you know trying to find the business level of application for AI because that's where the people are paying money uh, is in the business uh, in business consulting and trying to understand how to implement it, these sophisticated learning systems into uh, static systems and and basically start to transform their industry to uh, the high-tech industry. You say, well, they've got computers and they've got a database already. And uh, it's going to be like uh, when I first saw the book on Java. So I was a C++ programmer, got my experience in Unix, System 5, uh, Sun Systems. And I did a lot of the, you know, the the C-shell programming, uh, uh, C++ using the GNU compiler, and uh, got used to, you know, writing make files and, and link files. Well, make files, I guess, and convert into the link files, and eventually into the executables. And, uh, you know, I, I got comfortable with that world when I was in college, and then uh, when I came out of college, I, I had to go into the Microsoft world immediately and learn the visual C++. Um, but I remember I was consulting and, you know, making money uh, writing C++ code. And, and, uh, and then there was this um, time where I was, with, was going to a bookstore looking, you know, for more books to to learn and you know different technologies and my brother-in-law said hey look at this book here and there was just one book on this on this huge shelf of computer books used to be in the day where it'd fill up a whole wall of computer books um and it said java and he said this is going to be the future learn this technology and at the time, I was really happy with the C++ and, and uh, Visual C++, and I, you know, got some mastery on it, and did a couple of jobs consulting with it, and, you know, I was like, yeah, why would I need Java? But, um, you know, it was amazing because three years later, everything was Java, and you know, they were paying people $300,000 a year to be a Java programmer and have ex basically the same experience I had in college with, with uh, C++. And uh, I kind of wish in some ways I had listened to him to learn Java and, and uh, learn the libraries, the system libraries with Java and, uh, and have done my object-oriented design and UMLs using and as and had Java as my back end. Um, I worked with developers that integrated Java and uh, Borland C++ at the time. And, uh, you know, they were getting their speed from the C++, but they were using the Java to handle the workload. So they were, 
creating these huge arrays and putting the results in these huge arrays and then they were load balancing the front end uh, with uh, Microsoft ASP and they use the Java in the middle layer or the, to collect the results of the processes that were running uh, against the mainframe. So at the time they were running against the mainframe. And, uh, and the problem was, is, you know, it, it could keep up with the loads at the time. The mainframe could keep up with the loads. You know, there's like 10,000 users or so on it. Um, at a at a peak time, so you had ten thousand concurrent users actually hitting the mainframe, and um, you know it, it 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 could handle the loads, but they were looking for a better way to scale, a more scalable way that was not tied to a single machine, a mainframe, an IBM hard iron eighty ninety, I think, and. Uh, and so the solution was, is to use a cloud solution with lots of servers and Java. So then you can see the, the paradigm shift away from mainframe to uh, a Java-based system. And then they started to be able to write Java that could compile down into C to get the, the speed. And so you weren't in an interpretive language, you were actually in a compiled language and running your binary machine uh, opcodes. And so those opcodes then were going through the microprocessor and they were going through very fast and efficiently. So again, you know, we, we start off with very abstract languages uh, and then we figure out ways to get it close to the machine in the in terms of opcodes and efficiency. Almost like with uh, assembly language, you know, we originally started writing assembly language and then we started realizing we could abstract uh, to a higher level, which were macros. And then we started to write from macros to APIs and we created modern day languages and then from uh, from the from the modern day language, we realized that we could run pre-compiler parsing, and we created you know modern day <clears throat> lambda functions and uh, and uh, uh, runtime uh, compiling of data, so the data the code was in the data. So almost like a Lisp-like language that we were able to create in modern uh, programmable languages. And with AI now, uh, we will continue to advance the capability of the machine through um, uh, systems that can, like Python, that can be used to set up the input layers, the hidden layers, and then the output layers of the neural net, and also can be able to, to combine and can, can concatenate results from one layer, one network, into another. So we can set up uh, many networks working 
in tandem together to produce results, almost like a, a master controller design where you have a, a, a master controller that's receiving uh, results from subunits and then uh, through some sort of ensemble uh, making decisions based on the results of those subunits. And so we can set up these type of complex architectures to solve problems. And so this level of automation and understanding is, is going to transform uh, computing so that computing is, is far more um, complex than anything that we've seen. Maybe even almost organic because it'll be constantly changing and the programmers will be you know, working in the pipelines and working with the networks and adjusting it as uh, the things are changing in the company. Almost like a self-driving car is constantly learning from the results of its driving uh, and then uh, correcting for mistakes that it's made.